everyone, and welcome back to The Strike and Ellicott Files, an unofficial podcast dedicated to all things Cormoran Strike, as written by Robert Galbraith. My name is Ken, and today, Lindsay, Pools, and I will be continuing our reread of The Cuckoo's Calling, covering chapters 7 through 9 of Part 4. As always, please be aware that our discussion of Cuckoo's Calling will reference the ending of this book, as well as subsequent books in the series, up to and including Troubled Blood. Before we get into this set of chapters, we have a few announcements to go over and some excellent listener feedback we got recently. Our first announcement is a really exciting one that we've been working on for a long time. We just launched the brand new Strike and Ellicott Files website. Yay! Yay. And we should take this time to thank Sam for helping us put this together. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sam. Both an awesome guest and an awesome website developer. Yeah, we definitely could have done it without him, I don't think. Yeah, Yeah. big thanks to Sam. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, Lindsay, do you want to talk about what we've got on there? So we have all of our episodes up there. You can listen to them directly on the site if you want to. We have a list of our upcoming episodes that includes the release date and the chapters we're covering, which a Mm -hmm. lot of you have been asking for. The people have spoken and we have listened. Yes. Yeah. And then we have a way that you can contact us directly. So it links to all of our social media and you can send us an email that way. And then we have a blog section and I've been wanting to do this for a while. We're just going to use that to kind of type up some of the theories that we talk about on the podcast, Mm -hmm. but we know that some people either can't listen to podcasts or don't enjoy them. So we thought that we could do it that way as well. Yeah. And you can find all of this at the sefilespod.com. Okay. Let's go on to our second announcement. Since we've had a couple questions about this, we thought that it would be a good time to talk about what our upcoming plans are for the Ink Black Hearts. Looking at our schedule, as long as nothing changes, we should be finished with the Cuckoo's Calling and get in another predictions episode with the new synopsis about halfway through July. After that, though, we are going to need to take a little bit of a break. For practical reasons, obviously, there's not enough time to fit in another book before the Ink Black Heart. And even more importantly, the three of us feel like we really need to spend some time getting to know the Ink Black Heart really well before we just jump in and start trying to have discussions about it. I know that for me, I'll probably read it a couple times just for myself and then go back in and start making notes and marking things like locations and new characters and things like that. But all of that takes a little bit of time and we just want to make sure that we're putting in our best effort and not rushing it. Mm-hmm. On a more personal note, Pools and I both have some life things coming up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pools, you're about to become Dr. Pools. Yeah. And as soon as that happens, I think we'll have to address you as Dr. Pools <laughs> for a whole episode or something. But that's something that's obviously going to need a lot of your time and attention and focus. Yes. As I said, I'm fairly certain that legally you have to call me Dr. Pools for yeah. at least the length of an episode. That's, that's the law. I think so. I'm fairly certain. Mm-hmm. But in seriousness, yes, I'm currently in the middle of trying to get my dissertation written and the goal I've set for myself is to have a draft of the full thing finished by the time Ink Blackheart comes out, which means that I have some serious writing to do. So I'm going to yeah. be holed up like Gollum in my cave, except the fish <laughs> are my dissertation. And for me, I am currently about six and a half months pregnant. I'm actually due one week before the Ink Black Heart comes out exactly. So I will certainly need some time to recover, adjust, and just be with my family. So I don't think we can give a specific date or anything for when our Ink Black Heart episodes will start. I mean, I don't know about both of you, but I can't wait to start them and start diving into this book and doing episodes. So hopefully it won't be too long, but we do just want to give everyone a heads up and ask for 
your patience and understanding during this sort of transitional time in our lives and also with the new book. Yeah. Thanks in advance. We'll make sure to keep an eye on the blog section of our website, even though we won't have new episodes for a while after the season ends. Don't worry. We'll still be releasing some new content occasionally on the blog for all of you to enjoy in the meantime. Before we start with the chapters, we got a really good email the other day. Ken, do you want to read it? Hello, Strike and Ellicott Files. I just reread Trouble Blood while listening to your podcast. I noticed there are a lot of references to green in chapter 73. Robin thinks about the green dress before she reads Strike's card. The oval pendant she gets is shimmering green and blue, the color of both dresses. She mentions Michelle Greenstreet. Then there are several references to green in the tarot cards. Green is mentioned seven times in that chapter, which seems like a lot, especially since it's mentioned in such a variety of contexts. Anyhow, it led me to think that Michelle might actually help Robin and Strike get together in some way. I know a lot of people think she might drive a wedge between them, but I'm predicting the opposite. It doesn't seem like an accident that her name has green in it. My tinfoil hat is firmly in place. Cheers, Paige. I support that 100%. I am the tinfoil hat brigade and I love it. I don't even think this is tinfoil. I love it too. <laughs> yeah, this is yeah, barely tinfoil. Yeah. But it's good. It is. And then she asks, uh, what was the episode where you talked about characters with compound names? Green Street, Priestwood. I think he listed a few other names that I wanted to re-listen to it. I was wondering if the names might have subtle meanings, like Michelle is an avenue to helping Robin and Strike come together and Max is Robin's confidant. I wanted to mm-hmm. contemplate the other names to see if there's a pattern or if I'm crazy. Thanks, Paige. Okay, Paige, I really like this. First of all, seven is a, you know, I mean, this might be the Harry Potter fan of me talking, but it seems like a number on purpose. It's a magically significant number. It is a magically significant number. As we all know. We all know that. I know that a lot of people associate green with jealousy, but I looked this up to see if there were other meanings and I really like this. So it says green also represents growth and renewal being the color of spring and rebirth. Another association is And this is the really good part. This is what I like the best. Getting the green light to go ahead. I think you can get why I like this so much because what is chapter 73 if not a huge green light? Yeah, absolutely. Love it. I think that the combo of green plus street Mm -hmm. in her name really hints at that last interpretation that you brought up. Because if we look at it generally, Michelle's name, Green Street, might signify that the way ahead for the agency is green at last, right? Mm -hmm. The lights are green on the street. It's a bit literal, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. That her addition to the team is going to help them finally really gel and move forward. And then combined with all the other green mentions and their relationship stuff in this chapter, yeah. I think that that street's also green to go. Yeah, I love this interpretation of Michelle's name too, because I'm not a huge fan of the theory that she'll cause jealousy and disruption. Mm-hmm. But I'm also interested in just the names in general that she brought up again. I love Priestwood being like a priest or someone she confides in because that's something I've been hoping for and something I think we already got a glimpse into in Troubled Blood. Mm -hmm. I know I've said this before, but I really want Robin to have someone she can trust with no agenda. And I love for Max to be that person for her. Mm, yeah absolutely big thumbs up to max being a confidant to robin maybe he helps her through being her priest confidant helps her navigate through the tangled forest slash wood of her emotions oh yes i might be stretching like the metaphor but that's there, fine but i don't care i like it we can do that and maybe yeah michelle will somehow be the signal yeah i'm gonna have to think a bit more on that i'm really excited to meet her character <laughs> me too me 
three. Yeah, I definitely love all of that. Also, Paige, just as a side note, the episode where we mentioned the whole compound name thing is in episode 22 of season one. That's Cupid's Greater Flame. And I searched this up and Poole said this. Actually, Poole, if you want to read this. Yeah, okay, I'll read it. Let's see what I said in the past. There's another one of the compound last names showing up on minor characters in the book. Priestwood, Green Street, Loveridge. I hadn't noticed her using a lot of names with this kind of construction in previous books. And since we know that she puts a lot of thought into names, should we be paying attention to this? Mm. So that's three that I caught. So Loveridge, that just leaves Theo to figure out. Mm. Any ideas? I thought it could be like, so her love put her up on the ridge. Like her boyfriend got her into trouble. Mm. So now she's on like the, the cliff ridge. Is that a thing? Ledge? The ledge. Real ledge okay. ridge, that, same thing. It works. Yeah. But thank you, Paige. I really loved that email. Mm-hmm. Oh, did I tell you? Okay, so yesterday I found out that they have built, are building, developing this really fancy hotel on Denmark Street. It's called Chateau (gasps) Denmark. Yes. Like actual Denmark Street. Actual Denmark Street in London. I went into the hotel and did some sleuthing on their rooms. One of their room categories has rooms in the actual building (gasps) above the 12 Bar Cafe. I know, right? I'm going to send you the link. Hang on a second. Oh, God. (laughs) Can't believe I forgot to tell you. I'm freaking out thinking we could actually stay there. Okay, Stop well, it. it starts at like 700 pounds a night. So not unless I win the lottery very soon. <laughs> but the minute I do. Oh my God. It says in the building where the 12 bar cafe was. And I'm like, that's the building. That is the building. Oh my God, that's amazing. Right? Yeah, I thought you'd like that. I, I can't yeah. I forgot to send that to you. Me either. All right, shall we get into chapter seven? Let's. Yes. All right. Seven. (laughs) (gasps) Speaking of magically significant numbers. So in this chapter, we have Strike's interview with Kiara Porter. As a reminder, we just left off with Strike's interview with Bryony and the shoot lasts another three hours. I'm just so glad someone ordered pizza because three hours without a snack sounds horrifying to me right now. It sounds absolutely horrifying to me as well. And I don't even have pregnancy as an excuse. (laughs) Oh boy. After for Strike, it's even worse. Yeah, I don't think Strike has the excuse either. But he's a big guy. He's a growing boy. He needs snacks. Also, though, I follow somebody on YouTube who's a below-the-knee amputee, too, and she was making a video about how, like, whenever you're missing part of your leg because you have to compensate for so much because Mm -hmm. you're missing part of your body, you actually need a lot more calories. Interesting. You're burning more. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So his insane appetite actually does make sense. That's good to know. So I shouldn't make fun of him for it anymore? I mean, it's still endearing. It's still endearing and funny, it's adorable. but yes. <laughs> what are some of your first impressions of Kira? Especially just this first bit. I remember thinking that he wasn't going to like her because of how she immediately starts talking about how she knows Rokeby and Al and Eddie. And then she calls Lita a legend. <gasps> I guess he found it in his heart to look beyond that. Found it in his heart, eh? Thought mm-hmm. it was a, a little further south. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like he's absolutely giving her more leeway because of how attractive she is, which to be honest, this seems really realistic to me. But he also notes that she's not being offensive in the way that Tansy is or like the women at Lucy's party. She's not prying. She's frank and open wonder, which I think is a bit more endearing than prying. And it's the prying for info that he hates the most, right? I also had this thought that it was less prying than others, especially since These are people she knows. It's less weird to talk about them, right? Yeah. And I think you're right that her beauty could also be clouding this. But the biggest thing for me is that this beautiful woman who also surprises him with her intelligence is Mm -hmm. 
very obviously interested in him only 24 hours after he receives this total heartbreak. Mm-hmm. So it, this feels very much like a rebound ego boosting thing. You know, it's putting a little patch on his broken heart. Yeah. It's very much a bloke, isn't he? Well, yeah, of course he's flattered. He's a man and he's got a supermodel who's clearly thirsting after him. And yeah, he's just had a hard hit. To yeah, I mean, I think, I think a rebound thing could be anybody. True. Fair enough. All right. Kira also surprises him a little bit in a good way by saying that she has a deferred place at Cambridge. Mm. I guess it's the way that she speaks. You know, she uses a lot of likes and just the way she comes across could be as a little ditzy, maybe. Mm. I mean, but she's not. And maybe this was done on purpose to try and shake us out of those stereotypes. But I think it also impresses Strike, too, because... It surprises people that he got into Oxford. So I feel like he relates to her a little bit. I think it's really interesting to talk about the speech patterns that you notice. I think that the like thing and really all of the different filler moderating words can be traced in a large part back to female socialization, because as girls, we learn to soften and to hedge our speech. We're discouraged from being forthright and direct and taught to, you know, not offend people, not hurt people to sort of tone down what we're saying. And I mean, yes, I'm sure that there are other influences on this, like regional dialogue dialects, etc. But these speech patterns become female because they stem from sort of this socialization and then they're degraded for being ditzy because they're associated with females. Not that you're degrading them, but in general. But I think there's something to be explored between these ditzy speech patterns and sort of deeply ingrained aspects of gendered socialization. It's interesting because I've always seen this as more of a generational thing. Oh, yeah. Because I don't really see anyone, say, in my parents' generation or older using this type of speech. But I do see both men and women in younger generations use it. True. But other stuff like vocal fry. I'm sure older generations had feminine speech patterns that I don't know because I'm a youth Well, it made me curious and I did kind of look some of this up, but it does say that particularly the word like was made popular Mm -hmm. in 1982 by Frank Zappa and a song called Valley Girl, which is an exaggeration of California English. To your point, though, about softening speech, it says that it's mostly only used by younger natively English speaking people. Mm -hmm. And one suggestion for that reason is that younger English speakers are still developing their linguistic competence, wishing to express ideas without sounding too confident, certain, or assertive. So if they use like to fulfill that. Yes. I'm sure that both sexes do use it. I just think that if there was a study done about what people associate it with, it would be girls. It's just not what I or just I would people. think. <laughs> it's just to me, it's a very generational thing. I'm, because I when yeah. I hear people complain about it, it's these millennials, these youngsters, you know. Millennials are pushing 40 now. I know we are. <laughs> so thanks. Thanks yeah. for the reminder. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> but I mean, I could that could still be a part of it because I would assume she's younger than him, Kiara. I think she is quite young. Okay, moving on. I love this line when we're talking about how to understand Kiara. It was difficult for him to decide whether she was sincere or performing her own character. Her beauty got in the way like a thick cobweb through which it was difficult to see her clearly. I think it relates to what you were talking about earlier, like Strike being influenced by her looks, but also sort of how difficult it is for us to gauge her actual intelligence or character as a person. And I think it comes up that you and I have kind of different responses to her, right? We do. Yeah, we do. But I think that this sort of playing your own character thing, acting, behaving, playing up to other people's expectations of you can become so habitual that it becomes Mm -hmm. your reality. Yeah. As we'll see, we see her differently. Yeah. 
Do either of you have any thoughts about Lula and Duffield's commitment ceremony that Kiara talks about? Hmm. All I got is, ugh. <laughs> that was my initial reaction is, ugh. Well, for like the ceremony itself, if it was a mm-hmm. couple who loved each other, it could have been beautiful. Imagine Strike and Robin deciding to elope and Strike pulling out the perfect poem to recite to her from memory. Something that I think is super plausible that he could actually do, by the way. Without the bangles, though. No bangles, because bangles would be really annoying for everyday wear. Yeah. And I couldn't imagine Strike wearing a bangle. No, that's a hard no. I guess though what you're describing is so different though, because mm-hmm. the same situation can be different with different people. Yeah. I think the thing that bothers me about this is that it feels like it's all about the appearance of a wonderful and romantic love, but just days later, he's inviting another woman over to make Lula jealous and he's horrible and controlling. Basically this commitment ceremony, it means literally nothing, but they're all kind <laughs> of swooning over it. So ugh, yeah, seriously. Talk about making a mockery of love. Yeah, that's just how it feels to me. Yeah, I'm very glad it wasn't legally binding, which is a thing. So Strike makes sure to ask, was there any officiant where their papers signed? Because he wants to know, does Duffield have a claim on her estate? Was this legally binding? And then Kiara also talks about the story of Freddie Bastigui being there mm-hmm. and the rumor Kiara had heard that she clearly implies that he sexually assaulted someone. At the very least, it does remind me that there's a possibility that he could have been violent with Lula for turning his movie down. Well, we heard the same rumor from, was it Guy? Yeah, I think so. It does give a bit more credibility to him as a suspect, right? So Lula's, it's too late, I've already done it, could have referred to something to do with turning down a movie role or accepting a rival studio's offer, maybe. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it fits perfectly, but one could stretch it to picture something plausible. A lot of things that Kiara is talking about are things we already know, like the blue paper, the phone calls, DB Mac coming to town. But the one thing that's new is this idea that Marlene Higson, Lula's birth mother, was selling stories to the press about Lula. What do you guys think about this? I not only think that Marlene Higson was definitely selling stories, mm-hmm. I actually think that Kiara and Duffield were too, because they both repeat the idea that's just part of fame. She was a bit silly for being so worked up about it. And honestly, for them, selling stories about Lula would not only get them money, it would reflect back on their own fame. They both stood to benefit from Lula staying in the news. And I get the vibe that they both would have sold stories about her. That's interesting because I'm not really sure about Kiara. I feel like I read her the opposite way. You know, when she said something about Lula being upset that the press found out that she and Duffield were back together, Kiara's answer was that there's no way that was going to stay quiet. It felt true to me, completely believable. That's interesting because it sounded to me like the first part of a justification, like it was never going to stay quiet. So there's nothing wrong with me tipping off the press about it, except of course, the second part remains unspoken. I think this is definitely me being paranoid and not the actual text telling us this though. Like I will admit this is probably my own bias seeping through here. I just think it's interesting that Lula did test all of her friends and Rochelle was the only one she knew she could trust the phone with. Kind of implies to me that Kara failed the test a little bit. Maybe. I did consider that it was a justification, but like I said, Kiara's explanation just sounds so realistic to me. So Mm -hmm. my reading of this is that she's somewhat offended that Lula would think it was her because really there's no way it was going to be kept quiet, but she was being blamed for it. Mm -hmm. And as far as Lula testing them, we don't know what she told them to test them. So hearing this makes me wonder if certain things got out for other reasons and Lula was then assuming that it was them. It's possible. 
I don't know. I could see Duffield and Marlene Higson selling stories, but not Kiara. There's no description in here for like her voice or her body language that seems to point to her either being dishonest or guilty. And I think that if she wanted us to get that from what she's saying, I think Joe would have maybe pointed it out a little bit more like she does with Bristow. I think that we're meant to understand that she's telling the truth. Well, even Strike thinks that she's being open and honest. So mm-hmm. yeah, she doesn't come across as dishonest or guilty to me either. It's a good point about J.K. Rowling not putting pointers in unless her beauty is so cobwebby and masking that it's covering <laughs> up her mastermind liar status. Maybe it was Kira who did it the whole time. And she's just God, framed she... Bristow and made him convinced that he did it wow. somehow. She would have to be like as good a liar as Janice. Using mind powers. Kira <laughs> might be the Moriarty of this entire goddamn series. Okay. <laughs> what do you think of Kiara's opinion of Duffield's? I can appreciate seeing the best in someone, but there is a line. I couldn't decide, to me reading this, Kiara seems quite interested in Duffield and I couldn't decide whether she was genuinely attracted to him or if she wanted to date him for other reasons like her career but it seemed pretty clear to me that she wanted in there what did you guys think of that really (laughs) yeah I'm surprised because I have never thought that she was romantically interested in Duffield's the way I read this is that she enables and babies him in an almost maternal way it's actually the thing I dislike about her is that she treats him like a mother who thinks their child can do no wrong I guess we we read the next chapter pretty differently in regards to the maternal thing the number of women i see on social media who have this sort of twisted my partner is an incompetent child and i'm so charming for washing his filthy underwear and making shopping lists with pictures on it of the exact things i need because he can't read or understand how a grocery store works look at what a martyr i am i take care of my man but i didn't really get maternal from Kiara's behavior towards Evan as much. She was anxious to show him in his best light and to make excuses for his behavior and to fawn on him and all that. But women do that for the shitty men that they're dating or want to date. I mean, I'm sure it exists, but it still kind of screams maternal to me. And in combination with the fact that we know her type, she tells Strike that he's sexy because he's big and butch, while Duffield is described as somewhat small and feminine. I just don't think that she's into him at all. Mm. I think he shows more signs of that by wanting her to stay, but she's noping out because she's after strike. I agree that Kiara's attitude seems a bit more maternal towards Duffield. You see chemistry between Kiara and strike, but you don't really see that so much with Duffield and Kiara. She just seems like she's kind of babying him and giving him the benefit of the doubt, even though it's not necessarily wanted because Duffield's kind of a shithead. Kind of. He's a huge shithead. And I'm just thinking about this and I'm like, so we know from Troubled Blood that she's happy with the one night stand with Strike until he got famous. And then she called him back to start up again. Yeah, but because she's also attracted to him. Yeah, but I mean, you can be attracted to people who don't fit your perfect type, right? Like, yeah, I just don't see it. I'm sorry. That's fine. (laughs) But then the chapter ends with Gisame making another sexual statement that is intended to shock, right? Although this time it comes true. I mean, she does like him big, I guess. Yeah. Same girl. <laughs> Can't <Yep>. blame her. <laughs> I think we all co-signed that one. All right, let's go to chapter eight, where Strike interviews Kiara and Duffield together. We see Kieran Kalavis Jones again as they go to Uzi, and he seems a little unhappy to be seeing Strike again, doesn't he? To go with my point that I made previously that he's a good suspect, it could be that he's nervous around strike, you know, a little bit of a red herring. Hmm. Oh, looking at Kieran, I think he is pissed or 
unsettled and upset that Strike is the one being driven by him now. By which I mean, Kiara has clearly invited Strike out. Strike is in there, if you know what I mean. (laughs) He is in there. That's a social barrier that Kieran has never been able to break. He's been trying, Mm. failing. Yeah. And now this big ugly bastard just slides right in there. (laughs) (laughs) He's got to be so offended. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but that probably pisses him off even more once he sees them like making out in the back of the car. Just like really salt in the wound. He's going to be fuming. Yeah. I'm excited for it. The way Kiara asked Strike to hold all of her money in her phone, it's kind of clever because she's moving beyond this interviewer interviewee relationship because She's kind of establishing that he's going to be staying with her until he can either find someone else to take those things or until she gets back to her car. It's subtle, but she's smart. That is so smart. I would never think of doing that. But speaking of Kara, have we talked yet about how many mentions of her perfume there are? Because it's clear that it's really snagged Corman's attention and I think his arousal. Just, you know, and it gets a suggestive perfume name later on. So is this shades of the way Narciso will affect him in the future? Maybe does he just have like a really sensitive nose? Again, not his nose. (laughs) (laughs) Further south. Further south, yeah. Oh God, I hope so. If Narciso ends up affecting him anything remotely like this, I don't think any of us are going to survive Ink Black Heart like at all. No, I already know I'm not. I'm planning my tombstone now. It is funny reading this after reading Trouble Blood because the suggestive name you mentioned means smitten in French. And I can't help but think of the whole shaggable you panic, you know? Exactly. (laughs) Switching topics, Kiara says that Gisame hated Marlene Higson because he hated the idea of her and wanted Lula to be protected from disappointment. I really hate this and not because there aren't valid reasons to dislike Marlene, but the whole, I want to protect you from being disappointed when you're really just controlling is so frustrating to me. I think it's very much possessiveness masquerading as protectiveness, Mm -hmm. just like a certain other person we could name. Mm -hmm. Looking at you, Matthew. Yes. Same shit, different dude. And then Strike thinks, so much protection, Strike thought, as the car turned a corner in the dark, had Lula been that fragile? How would you guys answer that question? Well, that's interesting. I'm not sure. I genuinely think that she is a lot stronger and smarter than anyone in her life gave her credit for. Like she found her father and brother, even when her family was resisting her looking. She plotted these ways to find out who she could trust. She told Bristow no. She made it through all of her struggles with mental illness to have this successful modeling career. And then in another horrible way, I hear fragile and I just think breaking on the pavement. Yeah, she definitely wasn't as fragile as people around her thought she was. And she definitely seems a lot more tough and intelligent than the folks around her would give her credit for. I don't know, maybe they thought with her history of mental illness that she might overreact or something like that. But it's not like that was all that she was. Yeah, of course. Something else about Kiara that I like is that she's one of the only people in Lula's life that doesn't speak really badly about Rochelle. This might be more of the seeing the good in everyone thing or just maybe not being as judgmental. She doesn't have like a whole lot of redeeming qualities, but that's one of them. I don't know. I I like Kiara. She's not the type of person that I think I would be friends with, but... Mm -hmm. I think she does have a lot of redeeming qualities. I don't get the impression that Kiara and Lula were very close though, even though Kiara says they were, just because Kiara knows that Lula found a lead on her father at the college, but she thinks it fell through. She doesn't know that it actually led to her brother. Mm -hmm. 
the more we go through this book, the more I'm confused about who knew Lula best, who she trusted, who had pure intentions. Yeah, the depressing answer to that is no one. She didn't mm-hmm. actually have anyone she could 100% trust who only cared about her, except, of course, the brother that she never got to meet. Oh, that is depressing because I bet she would have found that in him. I like to think she would have, yeah. You know how last time I had said that Strike was sort of testing Marlene Higson by throwing out familiar names and seeing if she took the bait? He does that again with Kiara by throwing out Gisame's real name, Owusu. Do you think that I'm right about why he's doing that? Do you see a different reason? I thought that he was just trying to rule out all possibilities for who Lula's biological father could be. Like if she tracked him down somehow and built a connection, or if he was coincidentally also connected to her by having her brother working in her building, you know. How do you mean? Because I don't think Strike thinks that Gee or Wilson could be connected to her father. Oh, no, I, I mean that who her father is is unknown. Mm-hmm. All we know is that he was a black man. He could have been lying about being a student or being from Africa, or Marlene could have very well been making all of that up. So Guy's father or Wilson himself are both roughly in the age range, and they are, they're black men in Lula's lives. They could have conceivably been possibilities for her hunting down a father and either realizing that she already knew him or I don't think Strike really thinks they are her father. I think he's just a good detective and ruling out every possibility for who the father she was looking for could be. I was just thinking that he's testing how impressionable they are by throwing out familiar names and seeing if they run with it. Maybe. I mean, there's a reason he picked Wilson and Owusu because they're black men in the right age range. Well, yeah, because if he throws out a white man's name, no one's going to say, oh, yeah, I think that's her father. Yeah, that also makes sense, I guess. Yeah, I think that's exactly why he's doing it. And I really appreciate you guys bringing that up, too, because I remember, like, especially when I was first reading this, that I was very confused about why he was doing this. Like that bit when he was talking to Marlene and, you know, McDonald Wilson, like from (laughs) Africa. (laughs) And then this part, too. Yeah, that definitely confused me the first time, but that makes a lot more sense. We have our first run in with the paparazzi here. And mm. you know what I really want to know is if these paparazzi pictures of Strike and Kiara ever made their way to Charlotte. I really hope so. <laughs> I so think I. the possibility is high, especially since his picture was on the front page of the paper. Yeah. She must have been a mix of confused as hell and absolutely raging, yes. right? <laughs> yeah, especially because she's probably waiting for any sign that he got her message. Right. And this is what she gets. She thinks he's at home and he's out with supermodels. She's so mad. Totally backfired. Yep. So I love this idea. I'm going to, I'm going to plant it right there in my my brain. head canon for sure. Yeah. Same. So the nightclub they're at Uzi, I don't think this is a real place, but maybe somebody knows better than me. I looked at strike fans and it's just the place where they filmed these scenes, but that place is called McQueen and I couldn't find anything online. So unless this was a real place that's been renamed, it's one of those really rare made up places i'm fairly certain it is made up i couldn't find any real club in london called uzi but it seems odd that she wouldn't use a real club because she uses real restaurants and pubs and a club feels like it's the same kind of thing yeah totally maybe she really hates loud music and couldn't bring herself to go spend the night clubbing as research so she just made it up because that's exactly what i would do yeah i mean i would do that too because i hate nightclubs i always (sighs) have but she could have also just looked online at images you know true I've wondered about this before, but this makes me curious about how locations in the Ink Black Heart will be. She was writing that book at the height of the pandemic, right? And everything was closed. Mm. So I'm wondering if we'll see more made up places or if she relied more on Google and Google Maps. 
Maybe it'll be like a really outdoorsy book. Lots of cemeteries and wide open parks and haunted moors, etc. Places she can go during lockdown. Maybe they'll go climb up that mountain in Scotland. I mean, but she can look up the insides of places easily on Google too. Yeah, so true. I'm just wondering how the process was different for her this time because of the pandemic. Well, Let's ask her on so we can ask her about okay. it. Okay. Yeah. yeah we'll let's do, do it. <laughs> By the way, thank you to David who tagged us in a response to her and said to come on with us. What a sweetheart. You know, I don't think she's going to listen, but I appreciate the effort on our behalf. Never know. I was mostly interested in this nightclub though, because I really like the description of those fish tank things on the walls that are basically huge lava lamps. I still love lava lamps, so I would be totally interested in seeing pictures of that. That sounds yeah. super cool. I had a lava lamp as a kid, and they're so entrancing. Um, I have a lava lamp right now. <laughs> oh, <laughs> really? I didn't think they still made them. Yeah, I turn oh, it on yeah. every day. I love my lava lamp. Oh. But yeah, if I couldn't get a table near those things, I would have no other interest in being there. We sound so old and boring. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting though, there is also a note that Leda had a lava lamp too. Something that she and I have in common. One hmm. thing. That's a one <laughs> thing that you like about her? <laughs> that she likes lava lamps? Yeah. She's got the one <laughs> thing going for her. everything else? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> going back to Kiara, it seems fairly obvious to me where things are going with her if it wasn't already. But the way she slips her hand into his, she brushes crumbs off his suit and he asks about her perfume. It's very obvious. Yeah, he is definitely in there. As he says. Yeah, he is. At the same time, I know we disagreed with this, but I see so many moments in this chapter of Kiara being competitive with other women over Duffield. She tells him off for being mean to this sexy brunette, but it's a caress, not a sting. And she has no pity. And then that same brunette, she shoots a feline glance of triumph at her when she's the one invited back to Duffield's and I know you don't think she's I mean we differ on whether she's actually attracted to her maybe not but I think it might be a status thing for her having Duffield on the hook as well maybe I took that as annoyance that having this woman there with him wasn't Hmm. painting Duffield in a good light with strike I think that she's defensive of her friend being accused of murder and she doesn't want Strike to have any reason to doubt him. Hmm. Maybe some remaining loyalty to Lula as well in her dislike for that woman. You're a lot more generous with her motivations than I am. Speaking of Duffield, though, we've spent a lot of time talking about him. And now that we're actually meeting him, I don't think my opinion of him changes that much. I mean, how do you both feel? I find him to be very gross. He comes off as slightly sharper or smarter than I expected him to be. But he's still clearly a possessive, narcissistic, you know, abusive asshole. But the bits about him doing a quick recce of the bar and being aware, pretending not to hear Kiara, getting them out of there because he has information he wants to give Strike. I don't know. I think Strike recognizes he's a bit smarter than maybe some of her other friends and doesn't underestimate him. I don't know if I see any of that as him being sharper or smarter. Yeah. pretending not to hear seemed childish and defensive the getting out of there thing felt like he didn't want to risk his job with the stigui by saying what he said in front of other people i don't know if i see it as clever i don't think he's a genius i just i wasn't expecting very much out of him brain wise so maybe it's like oh he's not yeah, that he's stupid. not that's that what you're saying stupid <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah that's basically he's not quite as dumb as i thought he's smarter okay. than i thought <laughs> Speaking of that part, though, I really like that moment where Kiara starts to repeat herself that Strike has been hired by Bristow, but Strike interrupts her and says, he heard you the first time. There's no need. 
Mm-hmm. I like it because it sets a tone for who's in charge. Evan is probably used to getting his way and it seems like Kiara really coddles him. So I like this move by Strike. Yeah, it's a power move. Subtle, sexy power move. Let's go on to when they do leave. And I feel like there's a lot we could talk about when it comes to the second run-in with the paparazzi. First, Kieran Kalavis Jones taking his time and wanting to be photographed is so obnoxious to me. Ugh. Also, so unrealistic because does he think that anyone's going to print pictures of him in a magazine <laughs> and say, Kara Porter's driver, look at him. <laughs> Maybe he's hoping that some casting agent somewhere will see this photo and be like, oh, that's him. That's the face we need. Find this mystery man for me now, you know? Yeah, although that still means he's under some delusion that they'll print his picture, but I bet you're totally right. (laughs) That's funny. I guess as a whole, the picture it paints of celebrity is actually quite terrifying, Mm -hmm. especially when it's then contrasted with war, basically, as Strike has a flashback to his explosion. I agree. It genuinely is terrifying. In this whole section, the paparazzi are described in terms of combat. And I know that partly that's Strike drawing on this history to understand his present. But it makes me wonder about Joe's experience with the paparazzi. Didn't she sue or set some sort of legal precedent for paparazzi taking pictures of kids? I feel like that happened, but maybe I'm misremembering. I think I remember what you're talking about. Yeah. I have to look that up to be sure, but I think she did do that. Does Strike ever have any other flashbacks like this that we see? I know that we see him get anxious in cars or have nightmares, but this one feels like more of that classic flashback moment that you hear about. I think that this might be the only one. The only other moment that could even come close, I think, is when in Silkworm, he instinctively shouts brake when the car's about to crash. And even then, it wasn't quite a flashback like this. Um, But it's smart to have this in the first book to establish the trauma that he's dealing with. And at this point, he's only like, what, two and a half or three years past losing his legs. So that trauma is still going to be really fresh. Yeah, that's a good point. It really hasn't been that long. No. There's more paparazzi when they get to Evan's place and Strike's reaction against it is so visceral when it says, adrenaline erupted. Strike imagined himself exploding out of the car, punching, sending expensive cameras crashing onto the concrete as their holders crumbled. And he also says that he felt momentarily allied with the other two and compared it to being hunted. It feels like a lot of this is panic because of the explosion and how he's reliving it. But it also reminds me of the things we know about him, like his dislike for his own minor celebrity, his private nature, his parents, Charlotte. I really like that. What I'm getting from this is the whole experience was just super overwhelming for him. It also is the one moment where I like Evan Duffield. It's when he says, knock their fucking lights out, Corman. You're built for it. Because first of all, he sure is built for it. Yeah, he is. (laughs) He was a boxer. He was a boxer. He could have been a contender. Yeah, (laughs) But it sort of goes back to that momentary alliance thing too. So we see the three of these people all tied together by this intrusion. It makes Mm -hmm. us slightly more sympathetic to them because they're teamed with Strike, right? Not for long, but momentarily. Yeah. And I really feel for Strike that he's just had this horrible flashback and now he's entering Duffield's place. He's somewhat having another one because of how strongly he's reminded of his childhood with the smell of alcohol and cannabis, the guitars, the mess mm-hmm. everywhere. So he doesn't say it internally, probably because we haven't been introduced to him yet. But do you think mm-hmm. that Duffield reminds him a little of Whitaker? Because from the way they're described, there mm-hmm. seems to be there's some similarities there, right? Yeah, I can see that. Also being suspected of killing somebody, but not actually killing somebody. Oh, that we know of yet. That mm-hmm. we know of. <laughs> One thing that's interesting to me, and I kind of wish that we could see the inner workings and dynamics of all these relationships is when Duffield explains that he went to see Lady Bristow because he wanted to talk to someone who cared. 
Kiara seemed a little taken aback by this. And she said, I care she's dead. Excuse me. And he responds with, yeah, well, what do you think's going on there? Well, I don't entirely trust Duffield's stated motivations here. I think it's very Mm. possible that he was trying to get something, probably money from Lula's estate out of Lady Bristow, as well as, you know, visiting. But to be honest, yeah, Kiara doesn't seem that broken up about Lula to me, really. Yeah, I think you're right about both. I don't think that Kiara was that close to Lula, but she comes across as someone who is friendly with everyone or can be friends with anyone, but that doesn't actually translate into personal intimate friendship. So Mm -hmm. I think that she cares on in a surface level way, like someone in my life has died so tragically. This is so sad, but not in a way that indicates a real personal loss. Yeah. I think Dee and Duffield probably show like the most genuine displays of grief and actual like feeling something about it yeah i think so let's get to strike asking questions the first thing he asks is if duffield thinks she was murdered and he doesn't really give a good answer it's real ambiguous but that might be done on purpose to plant some doubt with readers you know he talks about how it would feel more real if he could only remember the funeral but i immediately thought of strikes note that he still did his eyeliner really well (laughs) (laughs) yeah right strikes yeah. up in the tea there i don't really trust anything that any of these people say i can't sense any authentic emotions coming from either of them really they both seem disingenuous and fake and superficial to me i don't know i'm getting the impression that i like kira more than you do yeah. <laughs> i do think she's honest i just don't think that she had a real friendship with lula so she doesn't have the emotions that we want her to have yeah maybe i think you do like her more than i do maybe it's just because she's so attractive and this is a jk rowling novel i don't trust good looking people in a jk rowling novel well the women are floors unless it's yeah. fleur delacour and that was a fake out I don't know. Maybe it's just my personal bias, but I definitely don't think that her friendship with Lula was actually intimate. So then Duffield calls Bristow a money grabber and says he was obsessed with how Lula spent her money. Hmm. This is kind of a fun one for me because we know just how important money is to Bristow and that he was a money grabber Mm -hmm. or money embezzler, should we say. But it's easy to dismiss it because it's Duffield. Even though I know it's true, I don't believe Duffield. I think it's just because Duffield's perspective isn't right. He's not on to Bristow because he knows the truth. He's defensive. Yeah, I mean, basically, so he can be right about Bristow, but for the wrong reasons. Yeah, exactly. So this quote always kind of makes me snicker a bit. So he still thinks I did it, does he? Your client? No, I don't think he does, said Strike. (laughs) because yeah Bristow definitely doesn't think that Duffield did it (laughs) yeah right yeah that's really funny yeah and Strike knows very well why he doesn't think Duffield did it at this point I can imagine Strike kind of laughing just a little bit in his own head at his own joke you know it's just for him just a bit just a bit yeah I think it's safe to say that we're 100 percent right in our assessment of Evan Duffield as a boyfriend Mm -hmm. because when Strike asked why he never answered her calls that day his response is because he wanted to teach her a lesson all because she wouldn't stay with him while Dee Dee Mac was there if I had a red flag I'd be waving it yeah waving it hard Mm -hmm. all of his rants about Lula are basically just him projecting his own behavior onto her again Matthew but the jealousy the games the cheating he's the one that's doing all of that and throwing it on her instead and it makes me loathe him yeah I wonder if it's just us grouping all of these awful men together or if there are tiny seeds being planted about Matthew Ooh, like showing this kind of behavior but yeah casting really harsh fluorescent on it so that we see like yeah Mm -hmm. yeah he is a world-class shit for sure 
Matthew or Duffield? Both. Both. I'm just kidding. I knew the answer to that was both. <laughs> Were either of you reminded of Bristow during this interview with Duffield? Hmm. Strike notices it earlier with his nervous behavior and shaking his knees, but I also notice it in the way that he dismisses some of Lula's behavior. And what I mean is Bristow said it was like Lula to have Rochelle meet her for only 15 minutes because she could be a bit selfish. And Duffield also does this when he says that it's like her to say something is urgent just to get him to call her back. So mm. both of these men are covering up their own bad behavior and twisting Lula's. That's yeah, not fair because she's not here to defend herself. It's, yeah. It's very mean of them to do that. She deserved better. It feels like there's a lot of emphasis being put on these phone calls to Duffield and Tody Landry, but I had no chance of understanding what it really was. No, absolutely no chance. I think the closest we could get is that something happened to upset her at Lady Bristow's that morning, that it had something to do with her family and maybe she needed her boyfriend's support. Mm. But no, I couldn't begin to guess what these calls were actually yeah. about. No. And there's a lot more that's basically going over things that we already know, like mm. their fight at Uzi, his history with drugs, Gisa May's controlling nature, mm -hmm. their phones being tapped. But Strike gets to the point of everything when he asks Duffield why he invited him back home. And I have to say, I don't think that I caught that there was a particular reason. I had just thought that it was kind of normal for them to go hang out at each other's houses and he invited Strike back too. I definitely wouldn't think he was inviting Strike for fun. I think I kind of assumed he just wanted quiet and privacy. I just didn't catch that he was going to actually say something important. Yeah, I didn't get that either. I don't think the first time. As a bit of a side note, I really like this bit where Strike gets up to leave, kind of calling Duffield's bluff. <laughs> and it says, to his slight surprise and Duffield's evident displeasure, Kiara set her empty wine glass down and began to unfold her long legs preparatory to standing. So she's definitely planning on leaving with Strike and Strike is like, noted. <laughs> Get it, Kiara? <laughs> But the thing that Duffield did want to say is that he saw an email on Freddie Bastigui's phone from Tansy that was threatening to tell where she really was when Lula fell. I feel like this makes Bastigui look like a real good suspect. What do you guys think? I think it definitely casts a bit of suspicion on him. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. supposed to at least. Because I guess it could mean that they weren't even in her apartment. or Yeah, she that she was somewhere else and therefore so was he. I also feel like this is a slight point in Duffield's favor that he told Strike only two days after finding out. I don't think he feels comfortable with the police, but he also didn't shy away from the opportunity to tell someone, even though it could get him into trouble. Yeah, I agree. He wanted to share this. I think he did care about Lula maybe more than, say, Kiara did, I guess. But his yeah. caring is, is very much warped in the same way that I keep going back to this well, <laughs> but for the, in the same way that Matthews is. Yeah, I think it's because they're cut from the same cloth, both kind of self-centered pricks who don't treat their partners well. Maybe I'm just comparing Kiara to Sarah Shadlock here, then. Maybe that's my issue, that I'm seeing Duffield and Matthew as a parallel, and I'm seeing Kiara and Sarah as one, too. Strike's response to that is very cool and calm with a, that is very useful information, but I bet he was so excited to have his, his suspicions confirmed. Yeah, I bet he was. I wish we got more like little thrills from him like we do with Robin, because yeah, I bet he feels too. thrills. Oh yeah, he does. Another thing I'll say in, in defense of Duffield is I can't imagine what it would be like to be accused of murder in such a public way. And with all the wrongful convictions out there in the world, this could have gone very badly for him. Mm. It makes me wonder if Carver and Wardle would have been more interested in a murder theory had Duffield not had that alibi. Well, I bet they would have been, especially since Wardle clearly disliked Duffield. I bet Carver did too. They would have tried hard to get him for it. 
Kenz, I remember you saying that Duffield had been your number one suspect. Do you remember how you felt after actually meeting him? I think I felt less suspicious of him afterwards. I still thought that he was an asshole, but I just remember being like, okay, doesn't seem like it's him. But then who the hell else could it be? I think I was thinking the whole time, it's always the husband or the boyfriend who does it. You know, that's typically how it always is. But that means that it's (laughs) never the husband or boyfriend in a book, right? Yeah, in a book, it's, yeah, definitely different. So then they leave, (laughs) well, Kiara and Strike leave. Mm -hmm. And this bit where the pop shouts, who the fuck are you at Strike (laughs) makes me laugh so hard. And I wonder if after he got famous, these photos of him and Kiara ever resurfaced. Now that they know who the fuck he is. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe. I'm sure that by now there's somewhere in the strike universe. There are fan forums that are like filled <laughs> with things like this. My God. Podcasts analyzing his famous cases. Mm-hmm. You know, he's on true crime podcasts. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yes. The meta would be us. Brain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so striking Kiara in the car. I feel like she asked Kieran to turn the radio up for a reason other than music. You know, do you really love the song Telephone, Kiara, or do you just want to drown out the sound of you making out with Strike? (laughs) Yeah, I think it's definitely for privacy's sake. Although it's not a bad song, is it? I was re-listening to it today and it's really catchy. (laughs) It is. It's a great song. Not my first choice for songs to make out to, but, you know, good on Kiara. She saw her opportunity and she took it. When we were doing Trouble of Blood, we'd always talk about the song lyrics, if they were in the text and what we thought they mean. What do you think this Lady Gaga one is? Call all you want, but there's no one home. Is that just, he's not going to be home tonight? Yeah, he's not picking up his phone tonight because he's busy. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> I'm thinking of Charlotte's games and her attempts to reach him specifically. Mm. Those aren't going to work tonight, Charlotte. I find it so awkward that Kieran Clovis Jones keeps looking back. Oh my God. I would not be able to get it on with someone in the back of a <laughs> chauffeured car or yeah. taxi. Absolutely not. Is the driver watching me? I know oh it's God. so awkward. Big no. Oh my God. Yeah. Awkward and creepy. It's just like I was talking about earlier with not only is he jealous that Strike is back there sitting there with her, but now they're making out in the back of his car. He's just got to be seething. And we do get one little actual clue here where Corman asks Kiara about the detachable lining in the handbags. Yeah. And she thinks it's funny, but he's serious because Lula has hidden her will under one of these linings. Yeah. Which, by the way, sound really neat. Do these kind of detachable linings actually exist? I don't know, but I think Joe should start designing bags because I would buy one. Totally would. They sound adorable. Very rock and roll. We've said before that J.K. Rowling is really good at saying a lot with so little. But the way she describes this interaction, she doesn't even say that they start kissing. It just says, her tongue was cool and sweet and tasted of Pernod. Have you slept with my father, he managed to say, between the pressing of her full lips onto his. I love the way this bit is written because she is spare with the diesel. She gives us just Mm -hmm. enough to understand what's going on without over-describing it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I am going out of my mind trying to guess how she's going to describe the intimacy between Cormoran and Robin. Like, is she going to do the same kind of like writing around it? Or is she going to put in a bunch Mm -hmm. more detail and have us absolutely lose our minds? What? I mean, this is kind of how she does it throughout the series. There's one other in particular that stands out to me with Ellen Mm -hmm. when he's thinking back and it says something like her alabaster skin underneath his mouth, like Mm. damp underneath his mouth, I think was. Yes, you're right. It's even more detail, but it's so subtle. 
it's just enough to paint a picture for you. It's enough for me to paint a picture. I'll tell you, but I mean, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I feel like it's, I feel like it's possible. We'll get a little bit more with Robin because we've been waiting for this for actual years, but it could be something like this. I feel like if she had slept with Rokeby, he couldn't have gone through with it. Do you guys agree? Or do you think that's delusional? Yeah, I think that's why he asked. Because mm-hmm. if she'd slept with Rokeby, he'd have been out of there. I don't think it's delusional at all. I think he's spot on. I was somewhat thinking that you might tell me I'm being defensive of him, that he was going to sleep with her no matter what. No, I don't think Strike would sleep with someone who'd slept with his father. That would be very creepy and gross. I don't, even a supermodel who was all over him, I think he'd nope on out of there, to be yeah. honest. Yeah, I mean, I do too. I just, I do give him enough credit for that. Ken, do you want to read this last bit? I know you love it. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. And then 10 minutes later, a lucid voice in his mind urging him not to let desire lead on to humiliation. He surfaced for air to mutter, I've only got one leg. Don't be silly. I'm not being silly. It got blown off in Afghanistan. Poor baby, she whispered. I'll rub it better. Yeah, that's not my leg. It's helping, though. Kieran Kavis Jones was right there when she's doing that. (laughs) They've been making out for 10 minutes in the back of that car. 10 whole minutes? I feel Mm -hmm. really bad for Kieran having to drive them. Like He is a human being. You're subjecting him to this? Free oh Kieran Colavis Jones. Oh God. I love him. that he's surfacing for air. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kieran should sell this story to the papers now that Corman's famous too. Yeah. Robin would read it very, very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe go over it a few times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can I throw out a question? Do either of you think it was unprofessional or a bad decision to sleep with a witness? Honestly, kind of. Yeah. I mean, I guess I can understand why he did it because he's basically at rock bottom. She's a literal supermodel, etc. But I don't think that he'd do the same thing today. And I, I don't think he would want Robin to either, although that perhaps wouldn't be motivated completely by wanting the agency to be professional. <laughs> he should make a rule. He should make a rule. Partners aren't allowed to sleep with anyone else in the world <laughs> other than the other partner. Yeah, that was definitely a bad decision, but one I don't think that he will be making again. Yeah, no, not today. Not in troubled blood times, you know. Okay, let's go on to chapter nine. So this is when Strike and Robin catch up and discuss each of their discoveries. And can I just say how much I missed Robin in these last two chapters? It just doesn't feel the same without her. Yeah, me too. We get so much less of her point of view in this book than we're used to by the time of troubled blood. Feels weird. I love the side of Robin when she's thinking about her shoes and how they had taken on the glamour of Cinderella's glass slippers after what she had achieved in them the previous day. It just feels so charming and dreamy and romantic in a way. And I would love to kind of see the spark back in her. She is adorable. And yet at this point, it feels like she's been exhausted and miserable for years. And I know I've made this request before, but I, I just need her to be this kind of happy again in Ink Black Heart. I am begging for it. But I feel like the end of Troubled Blood was almost returning to this kind of joy that she hasn't felt in so long. And that maybe it's a positive sign again. I think so. I'll beg with you. Okay. And it's also a really cute parallel to Strike because doesn't he later in this very same chapter think about how his Italian suit is now his lucky suit? It's like they're doing the same thing. Ooh. So was it the lucky suit that he was wearing to take Robin to the Ritz? Because inquiring minds want to know. You know what? I've always assumed that it was, but it doesn't actually say that, does it? No, it just says a suit. 
It's also no surprise that I love seeing how excited she is about the job and what she found out. She was confident that any lingering awkwardness after Strike's drunken escapades of two nights previously would be utterly eclipsed by their mutual excitement about her dazzling solo discoveries of the previous day. Dazzling. I love her. This is her first solo detective triumph. So of course she's excited and thrilled. And it's really rude of Strike to be out getting laid and (laughs) not here in the office to celebrate with her at the stroke of nine. Honestly. It is so hard for me not to jump into full-blown chipper mode right now because all of Robin's worries and thoughts that he had gone back to Charlotte. I mean, the fact that she thinks perhaps Charlotte had thrown herself into Strike's arms and they are now reconciled, lying asleep entwined in the house or flat from which she had been ejected four weeks ago. She's really painting a vivid picture for herself, isn't she? A painting, I might add, that's still haunting her five years later. She sure is. And I think this kind of points to what I've said previously. I don't think she's romantically interested in him at this point, but I do think Mm -hmm. that she's interested in him as a person, if that makes sense. Like, it's not just the job, although most of it is the job, but they've clicked at this point. You know, she likes him. She scraped him up and helped him get a kebab when he was drunk. So she's invested in him now. That makes much more sense than reading it with shipping classes. I mean, he was at some point lying asleep and entwined with someone. It just wasn't Charlotte. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I do almost love it even more that it's the job she's worried about because of what Lucy had said. So even though she knows she's only supposed to be there for one more week, I am certain that Robin has been harboring the secret hope of staying and that she won't even admit it to herself or think it out loud. And that's why she's so worried. Most definitely. I also adore her uncharacteristic inaccuracy with the typing here. It's just yeah. it's a cute way to show how just how affected and unsettled she is by this. And then Robin jumping scenarios to the possibility that Charlotte turned him down and he's now in trouble somewhere. I'm laughing because it seems so unlikely, but it's also something that I would do. Yeah, I mean, I would do the exact same thing. Like, absolutely I would. But listen, never mind that he is a grown-ass man who's looked after himself for 35 years. Obviously, he now needs Robin at all times to make sure he's okay and to stop him from doing something stupid. That's just how it works because he's hers now. So at this point, if I hadn't already disliked Matthew, Robin's summary of their fight over her being late the night Strike got drunk is so... I can't even think of a word because it's just so frustrating. Matthew had told her yet again that she was naive, impressionable, and a sucker for a hard luck story. That Strike was after a secretary on the cheap and using emotional blackmail to achieve his ends. That there was probably no Charlotte at all. That it was all an extravagant ploy to engage Robin's sympathy and services. The absolute nerve of him to say that there's no Charlotte at all when Robin literally almost collided with her. And then Strike's sister independently confirmed her existence. Does Matthew think that Strike is hiring actors to convince Robin of his story or something? Like, I don't know. Maybe that's something that Matthew would do. But that's crazy town. Oh, Yeah, it is. It's just such an insult to her intelligence and to her as a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. I just I hate him so much. We're always on board the Matthew hate train here. Robin's response, though, is real good. Oh, I love this, too. I can read this out. Then Robin had lost her temper and told Matthew that if anybody was blackmailing her, it was he with his constant harping on the money she ought to be bringing in and his insinuation that she was not pulling her weight. Hadn't he noticed that she was enjoying working for Strike? Hadn't it crossed his insensitive, obtuse accountant's mind that she might be dreading the tedious, bloody job in human resources? I'm so proud of her for not giving in like she used to. God, same. And not only not giving in, she is fighting back. Mm. She is hitting back at his insensitive, obtuse accountant brain. 
love that. The real Robin is starting to awaken. Love it. Yeah. And I know at this point I was still in denial about Robin and Strike, but I'm pretty sure I knew that she and Matthew wouldn't last at this point. His behavior, his accusations are not okay. Mm -hmm. I'm always so surprised when people say this is just normal behavior for men or that it's not that bad. Yeah. Talking to me. It's very upsetting. And it makes me wonder about the men in their life when they say that. Makes me worry for them. But at this point, yeah, I was also ready to show Matthew the door. It's funny to me that her anger turns towards Strike because I think it's so unfair, just like how Strike was mad at Robin when he was really mad at Lucy in that previous chapter. Yeah, they both do the exact same thing, but they each do this in later books too, don't they? I'm thinking specifically of Robin being mad at Strike because Matthew made himself look like an asshole and spilling over onto strike in Silkworm. But I'm certain there have been other instances of this, right? Probably. Yeah, probably. It feels like a little sign that maybe they both have difficulty connecting with and acknowledging their own feelings. Yeah. More something. Especially because she's only been there for... 10 minutes and she's already complaining that he's irresponsible while she's holding down the fort while he's chasing Charlotte you know it's (laughs) it's so funny and the fact that she's so angry that she's not going to tell him what she found and then just talk about leaving she was so excited to tell him and so upset about leaving it's just it's such an intense emotional reaction yeah it is she's she's disappointed so she's angry and she's lashing out in her imagination i think we all missed the most important part of that the bit about her holding down the fort and everything the end of that sentence never mind their business and then she corrects herself and says his business oh yeah that is the most important part it is their business they're already like a, a unit a team they are. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out, Kens, because mm-hmm. yes, yeah, so accurate. This next bit is a bit long, but I think it's really good. It says, Strike, whose run of appalling luck had been broken in fabulous style just a few hours previously, and who was feeling as close to buoyant as he had been for many months, had been looking forward to seeing his secretary. He had no intention of regaling her with an account of his night's activities, or at least not those that had been done so much to restore his battered ego, for he was instinctively close-lipped about such matters. And he was hoping to shore up as much as remained of the boundaries that had been splintered by his copious consumption of Doombar. He had, however, been planning an eloquent speech of apology for his excesses of two nights before, an avowal of gratitude, and an exposition of all of the interesting conclusions he had drawn from yesterday's interviews. First of all, whose run of appalling luck had been broken in fabulous style is hilarious. It super is. But really, it seems to me that his run of appalling luck was actually broken the second that a certain temp arrived in his office and he just hasn't realized it yet. So this is just more of his good luck since that moment. Yes. It's interesting that he thinks sleeping with Kiara restored his battered ego. Was his ego battered in a sexual sense? I mean, he was the one who left Charlotte. So was it the fact that she was cheating that battered him? Or is he just talking about his sort of general situation, the living in the office and the state of his business that's hurt his ego, do you think? Maybe everything, but I do Mm -hmm. think that it was because of the cheating. I know that we see this slightly differently, but for me, this Mm -hmm. is another indicator that her cheating was the biggest wound for him and has left him with a battered ego that she didn't actually love him. Yeah, I can see. I can see your point there. Second, I like this little note that he was instinctively closed-lipped about such matters obviously meaning who he's sleeping with. It's just telling us more about that private side to him. And I'm interested to see how that plays out when it's Robin he's sleeping with. He's a gentleman. That's (laughs) really, I like that. That's really good. Yeah. 
And lastly, I wish I could hear him planning that eloquent speech of apology. I want to hear him planning it. Yes. I mean, strike apologizing is one of my favorite things. See troubled blood but i will take him planning out any eloquent speech he makes to robin and it makes me wonder are we ever going to see him planning a proposal speech because i would love to see him agonizing over what to say there but apology speeches are right up there i do think he's going to plan it but mostly Mm -hmm. just because it would be a contrast to his spontaneous proposal with charlotte yeah i want him to be planning it and agonizing over it i want it to be really cute it makes me laugh when strike says i'm only 11 minutes late yeah (laughs) Yeah. well we know robin is obsessed with punctuality sometimes but in addition to this i love his can you leave that important document for a minute while i say something to you for some reason (laughs) it's just it's really sweet and he's so determined to apologize properly but it also feels like he's slightly teasing her because he can clearly tell that she's mad yes the teasing it adds to the sweet and i like his actual apology for his drunkenness though Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a genuine, sincere apology. He really stood up and took accountability. Yeah, it's not overblown, is it? He says, I'm sorry. And he offers explanations, but he's not overdoing it, you know? Yeah, and I love when he says it wasn't your responsibility to confine me like that, but you probably stopped me collapsing in a gutter or punching someone. So thanks very much. Yeah, she did definitely stop him from doing both of those things. (laughs) Yeah. He was a boxer, you know? Yeah, well, he could have been a contender, so. Do you think it's the apology that softens Robin or the information that he hadn't gotten back with Charlotte? Mm, I would definitely weigh it towards he hadn't gotten back with Charlotte because that's when her arms unfold and she picks up her tea, right? Body language. And here's that line that you like pulls where he tells her not to keep him in suspense over what she had done the previous day. And it says, Robin expanded like a water blossom. How many times have I mentioned that I love this line that you know exactly what it is? But I do love it. It's first of all, it's such a vivid image. And second of all, it's it's a clear demonstration of how much Robin wants Strike's approval and praise and how important it is for her to have her contributions and her genius appreciated. And I just It's one of my favorites in this book. I just think it's lovely. So the things that Robin does find out, first goes to the college and asks about Professor Aggieman. And I love the way she says, and I got a picture. Because I imagine it in the same kind of way that Strike does when sometimes delivering really exciting news. They seem to speak this way to each other because they're the only other person who will be as excited as they are. And soon they're going to expand from this onto being able to recognize the fact that the other has something amazing to share just from their tone of their voice or just by looking at their face because they're so in sync. So she also finds out that the professor died five years ago, but he has a son in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Strike is very excited about this. Do you both yes. love Strike getting up and pacing like I do? Nope. I like that he tends to do this when he's on to something big. Mm. Like he's so energized by a breakthrough that he just can't stay still. Yeah. yeah, I love that. And then, okay, her trip to Oxford and the Mummies in Hotel. The first thing I love about this is how Robin admits her mistake of pretending to be Allison right away. Because Strike had thought it was a mistake too. And I feel like he was impressed that she figured it out so quickly. Absolutely. Probably even more impressed that she managed to salvage the situation so quickly and cleverly, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, it's a mistake, but she brought it back really well. I said, well, okay, then I'll tell the truth. I'm his girlfriend. And I (laughs) cried a bit. You cried? It wasn't actually that hard, said Robin with an air of surprise. I got right into character. I said I thought he was having an affair. 
I just think she's so amazing. Robin is clearly an undercover genius. Yeah. I think that's very apparent. I love that Joe is establishing that Robin is good at this so she can use it in other books. Yeah, like in some ways in this first book, there are things that seem inconsistent later, like all of these friends she's phoning, where did they go? But then in some ways you have a lot of her core character traits are so firmly established and feel so real and carry on through all of the books that, that you know Joe knows who she is and has planned this out, you know? Oh yeah. So basically what she finds out is that Landry checked in but didn't stay the whole time. Obviously we know that's because he was hiding his affair with Ursula. So was he holed up in his room with Ursula and just didn't pick up the phone when reception called? Is that why they thought he wasn't at the hotel? Or it's either that or she had another room somewhere. Mm. We'll have to check it, but obviously she would have needed a room to stay, right? An excuse. Oh yeah, that makes sense. But Strike also mentioned his alleged visit to Lady Bristow that morning that Lula died, and he says they're both shifty about that visit of Landry's. Neither of them likes talking about it. And I feel like we could put a blues clues stamp in our notebook because we know he wasn't actually there. Yep. He absolutely isn't there. So then we think, well, why is Bristow lying about seeing him there? Hmm. Spoiler alert. They were both making it up. <laughs> I really like Robin getting another call from Temporary Solutions in all of this and becoming Australian Annabelle. It's so good, <laughs> especially because it makes Strike laugh. Yeah, I love it. His joke about getting through a lot of Annabelles because this one sounds South African is absolutely hilarious. Is that Strike's jokes or Robin? I thought Robin said that. Yeah, Strike said, I'm getting through a lot of Annabelles. That one sounded South African. I think that's Robin saying. No, it's not. This has been a point of contention, I think, because there was an article, I think, that Louise Freeman actually wrote about that as well because she thought it was strike and the rest of us thought it was robin well the dialogue isn't attributed with the tag so it's ambiguous but i absolutely read it as strike saying it since there's a full stop and a paragraph break after the previous thing robin said but strike's not getting through annabelle's yeah he's getting through annabelle's because they're his temps he's getting through temps i think that we might also be thinking that because in the audiobook robin says that okay i've never listened to the audiobook so I guess we'll agree to disagree. Another thing for people to chime in on. Robin asked Strike what happened with Bryony and Kiara. And I want to list the thing he mentions because those are probably the things that are important. Mm-hmm. Bryony's insistence that it was dyslexia that caused her to listen to the voicemail, obviously, which I think is important because like you mentioned last time, Pools, it sets her up for the Jonah John mistake on the will. Mm-hmm. Kiara continuing to say that Lula said she was leaving everything to her brother. It's especially telling now that we've just been told that this professor Lula was interested in has a son. It's all coming together now. He says Duffield was annoyed that Lula kept checking the time at Uzi the night she died. And obviously that was to make sure she wasn't late to meet Jonah. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, the threatening email that Tansy sent to Freddie, where she said she was going to say where she really was when Lula died. Yeah, And of course, Strike already knows exactly where that was. You know, logically, I know that Strike not telling Robin where he believes Tansy was is so that it keeps it a secret from us as readers. But I love how he tells her it'll be good for her detective training. It's like they both secretly want that. Absolutely, they do. I think clearly at this point, Strike has recognized that Robin has that natural talent and also that he likes working with her. So yeah, he wants, wants to keep her. When we were talking about Strike checking out Lexinka and why Robin was paying attention, Ken, your suggestion was that she was watching him to see how he worked. And I love that when you said that, but I think we're actually seeing her doing that here. Although all he's doing is taking notes. Strike was showing off again and he knew it, but he could not help himself. He was, as he put it to himself, on a roll. 
Some might have questioned the taste of finding amusement in the midst of a murder inquiry, but he had found humor in darker places. Strike showing off to Robin is just the cutest thing in the world. Yeah, I love it too. She's showing off to a pretty girl. <laughs> it works so well on her. She's so impressed. And I think that's part of what's cute about it. When Robin leaves to get sandwiches, I wish we could have seen her reaction to finding Strike on the cover of the standard. I'm guessing she gasped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This next part is so entertaining when Robin starts to put together where Strike slept. Slept, slept. in air quotes. Yeah. Um, Didn't do much sleeping. I realize I'm going back to my shipper instincts because mm. the fact that she realizes he slept with her had eclipsed even her excitement over the progress of the case. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my mind goes to the exact same place too, but her mind is blown by that. <laughs> and I love this bit. She had heard his pathetic attempt to conceal his pride. <laughs> so funny to me. Yeah, yeah, it's really funny to me too. I guess it's just her overall reaction to everything. The anger at him not being there, the worry over Charlotte and her job, but also not liking that he slept with Kiara. It's just, mm. it feels like a lot of emotions that even she can't place. And I feel like I'm slipping right back into shipper mode. I can feel it happening, but. Did you ever leave shipper mode? Uh, no, I'm trying to be fair. Because oh. I know that that's not what it is, but it's just, <laughs> what is it? She's having intense reactions to all of this. She is. Yeah. And then she says it's difficult to reconcile her view of him as a blighted romantic. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I feel like this moment is the end of Robin ever actually feeling sorry for Corman Strike again. Like I love in later books, but she just has no sympathy for whatever nonsense he's up to. I think she has her moments. Yeah, like when he comes back from interviewing Amir and he's like X amount of stones soaking yeah. wet. You're a literal Xboxer. <laughs> yeah. No sympathy for me. No, no sympathy no. for strike. But yeah, maybe she has her moments. I am so excited for potential parallels we're going to see in Ink Black Heart and in book seven. You know, Trouble Blood was the first time we had to look at those kind of parallels and I just loved them so much. I can't wait to see the kinds of things we get. Mm. You know, if, if Strike and Robin don't sleep together until seven, which... I think it's possible and maybe even likely, then are we going to get a contrast to Kiara where instead of a one night stand, it's a forever type thing? Oh, that would be amazing. Aww. Maybe there'll be a bit where Pat is calling Robin to find out where Strike is when he's late <laughs> for work and Pat's furious and Robin knows very well where he is because he's, you know, <laughs> sleeping right next to her. That would be a really yeah. cute parallel. I'm kind of talking myself out of that immediately though, because it does seem more likely to me that that will be contrasted with the story of his first night meeting Charlotte's, but mm. I guess that does also argue a one seven parallel for that. My point is that I can't wait to see those things. And it's one of the things I'm really excited for the ink black heart, because I had a lot of fun with those things from career of evil and trouble blood. Mm -hmm. And then finally we get a nice little fun cliffhanger to close this chapter because Wardle calls and tells strike they fished a body out of the Thames and it has his card on it. What a damper to their exciting morning. Yeah, that kind of, that would ruin the mood, wouldn't it? Yeah. And I bet Shrike's heart sunk because he might know already. I'm yeah. sure he knows. Yeah. Yeah. Whose body it is that they've found. Well, this is a, definitely an interesting set of chapters. <laughs> yeah. I guess we'll find out next time whose body that was. Although I think Strike already knows. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks for another episode, this time covering chapters 10 through 12 of part four. If you enjoy what you've heard, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the SE Files pod with regular updates announcing future episodes. 
If you'd like to send us a response to anything you've heard or have something you'd like us to discuss on the show, you can always visit our website at the scfilespod.com or email us directly at scfilespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to catch you next time for another episode of the Strike in Ellicott Files.